Welcome to Results May Vary, a podcast to help you design your life. Chris and I have worked in the field of design and innovation for over 17 years between us. We've helped sustain a food revolution for Jamie Oliver and redesigned the way LA County votes. We've even engaged the world's most creative minds in science by turning their genes into music at TED. Throughout our careers, we always wondered, what if we took the same creative problem-solving process we used to help well-known organizations solve their toughest challenges and applied it to people's lives? Would it work? Would anyone listen to us? And maybe even scarier, what would happen if they did? Results May Vary is a thoughtful experiment to see just what happens when you set out to intentionally design your life. Results May Vary! In this episode, we introduce you to Barbara Knickerbocker Bestkind. Barbara has been designing her life for almost a century, with a stint at global design firm IDEO starting when she was just 93. After seeing founder David Kelly featured on an episode of 60 Minutes, Barbara wrote to the company, offering to help design for aging and low-vision populations. Hailing from the field of occupational therapy, after training through the U.S. Army's War Emergency Course and serving for 20 years before retiring as a major in 1966, Barbara's own experience with macular degeneration led her to design glasses to help her and others with the condition. In this episode, Barbara shares her fascinating story of personal reinvention and how rather than allowing her illnesses and advanced age to hold her back, she simply used them as new constraints to redesign her life around. My full name is Barbara Knickerbocker Beskind. Uh, I am an employee at IDEO, have been here for three years, uh, almost three years. Um, I'm in my early 90s. I was an occupational therapist for 44 years. The first 20 of those 44 were in the military service. I was an army occupational therapist for 20 years. I retired from the military in 1966 as a major. I finished my career after 44 years and started school for to learn to be a, a writer. I, I really enjoyed abstract art and the history of abstract art in the Russian avant-garde. Were you an artist yourself as well as a well, art historian? Well, as an therapist, you always are expected to, to be able to render uh, suitable designs and uh, we were always developing uh, a piece of equipment. That's how I really started my background in design and uh, developing in, uh, equipment for physically handicapped people, particularly uh, uh, war injuries after World War II, um, Korea, and Vietnam. And what was, what was the design industry like then? What, were there processes that you followed? Like now we, we talk about design thinking and the design thinking process. What, what was it like back then? You fly by the seat of your pants. There was no plan. You just developed it according to need. You watched how it worked or didn't work, and then went back and started over again. What were some of the designs? They were not complex, but they met the need to make to make it possible for people with um, orthopedic injuries or neurological injuries to be as independent as possible in their living uh, daily living tasks. Um, I was going to ask, what were some of the things that you 
that you worked on? What were some of the designs that you well, created? Well, I worked a lot with the polio patients. Uh, there were still epidemics, uh, very widespread epidemics. Uh, I was at Walter Reed Army Hospital following my six months at Georgia Warm Springs Foundation for Polio Rehabilitation, which was a wonderful experience. And after six months uh, graduate training there, then I was uh, uh, stationed at Walter Reed for three and a half years and worked with many, many polio patients. Um, the most important thing that we used to do was uh, we used to have overhead arm slings so that they could lift their arms if they lost the muscles uh, to do so. And also, the, uh, we used to make thumb splints to hold the thumb in. It was a plastic uh, molded splint to hold the thumb in position <clears throat> so that you could uh, hold a pencil. Uh, that was important for young children. We had many, many children who had polio. Um, and then we also, just, uh, uh, we had to learn to fit braces, hand braces, so that the, the uh, brace makers could then make them out of aluminum. And <clears throat> they were wrist and hand braces so that the fingers could be elevated when they lost the, uh, the motor power to do so. Um. So it sounds like you've had a long and varied career. Could you tell us how you came to be a designer at IDEO? <laughs> well, that's a rather unique story. First of all, in January of 2013, after I had moved here from New Hampshire to uh, the peninsula to be closer to my family who lived then uh, in, on the peninsula, I saw David Kelly uh, on 60 Minutes at that time, I couldn't contact IDEO because I was recovering from uh, breast cancer surgeries and radiation, so I had to get my strength back. And then, in order for me to come to work, I had to come by public transportation. I did not want to ask my daughter-in-law to uh, uh, bring me to work. I would never apply for a job if that was the case, so I had to learn. I had to go through vision, uh, since I have, I'm, have low vision. I'm, at this point, I'm legally blind in both eyes. At that time, I was only blind in one eye. But I did need uh, visit visual rehabilitation so that I could walk safely uh, to cross streets, uh, along the sidewalks, get on uh, city buses, get on the train, and maneuver. I, come to, I came uh, by train this morning to work, as I do every time when I come to work and uh, go both ways by train. I walked to the office, it's about three and a half blocks. Um, at that time, I was, uh, in June of 2013, I finally had finished polishing my letter and I sent it by snail mail, which probably got their attention because they don't get much, uh, many applications to work by snail mail. And my letter said, I uh, gave a background of my experience, and I said that I felt that I had uh, skills that could contribute to their company, and I most of all wanted to be among people who had an energy of uh, creativity and problem solving that I could interact with and provide a perspective from my point of view. So what inspired you to decide to take another job? At this point in your life? <laughs> well, I live in a retirement community and uh, there are many lovely people there, but I wanted to find people who could, who were still very active uh, in the business and uh, engineering uh, communities 
um, that were creative. And yeah, I could engage in thinking, I could hear their ideas. And what's great about IDEO is that I'm working with people who may be six decades younger than I am. And that's all the more exciting because that's where I get my energy. And most of all, they come from countries all over the world. They bring their perspective, which is very enriching. And it's, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. I wouldn't have missed it for anything. This is one of the best adventures of my life. So, I, I mean, when we met, uh, we were working on a, a magazine together called Designs on Aging. And every, I would, maybe once a year or so, IDEO puts out this magazine and they have a different theme. And I was really struck by your story because I felt like you you took a big risk, really, in reaching out. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder, since we met, that was probably two years ago. Um, it would have been December or January 2014. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so just about two years ago. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, how how has your life changed since then? What's happened since we, we last met for you here? Well, after the magazine you mentioned went online, uh, telling you about, I was also honored as, uh, uh, let me go back. Uh, at that time, they were offering a contest uh, worldwide of all the employees uh, to de develop and design things for the aging. And so since I was too late getting in uh, to enter any, any idea myself, they came to me and said, would you be one of the uh, 12 or 13 judges, which I agreed to do. Um, and then the article you were interviewing me for, unbeknown to me, I was being honored by, because they were dedicating the, the magazine to me. So when that went online about February or March of 2014, <clears throat> then Tim Hay of the Wall Street Journal uh, noticed it and asked for an interview and that, that interview was printed May 6, 2014. After that, it was kind of a, <laughs> it just kind of ballooned from there. I was interviewed by NPR um, on oh, Growing Boulder. That was in September of 2014. When that was uh, picked up, then uh, I was invited to be interviewed by NPR for all things considered in January of 2015. And after that, everything mushroomed. My next engagement was the Today Show in February. That was on my birthday, actually, that they filmed that. Um, and after that, it's just been like a snowball. It seems like you've inspired a lot of people to think about uh, how to design aging, really, and how to how to design for the actual people who are going to be using the products and services that are out there. Yes, I think too many times people design for us and not with us. And this is my motto, design for, not design with, not for us. That was one of the quotes that was actually picked up in the White House conference on aging and quoted, uh, uh, it's quoted by the next panel that spoke at the White House. It's been picked up, um, and other media. 
Uh, I think this is the important thing, that uh, people who are aging have the experience and the perspective that they can lend to a product and to the design of products so that they really are functional. And if, you, if a product makes life easier for an elder adult, then they will use it. Uh, if it is only an accessory, you'll find it gathering dust. Yeah, I was recently speaking with somebody who had uh, accessibility issues, and he was also talking about a similar thing, which is that most people think that they should design for, and they're not inviting the people into the conversation that they're actually designing for, uh, and they're not inviting them in even here, right? Like at IDEO, uh, we would go out and we'd have interviews with people and kind of understand their wants and needs. But rarely, or more rare than would be desired, we don't invite the people in to co-design with us or to have people on staff who have the needs and the wants that we are designing for. Well, I think the perception is that once you're over 75, you don't think. And so how would you have anything to contribute? I personally find that uh, by my loss of vision, it's a... It's an inconvenient truth. I wouldn't have chosen to lose my vision, but I think it's, it enhances my ability to understand what elderly people who have serious vision problems, as I do, uh, what their needs are and how they have to cope. What are some of the things that you do to cope? Well, for instance, I, I have two uh, ski poles. They're adapted so that I have a hand grip that's very comfortable that I made myself. Uh, I've had, I use rocker bottoms on the uh, bottom of the ski pole so that I can get a push off so that walking is much easier than just walking without any, uh, and I wouldn't use a cane, I don't need that. And I don't certainly don't need a walker. Uh, I like to use ski poles because the handles are vertical and they keep my posture upright and in good positions. And also, I can use an alternating arm, uh, arm like uh, gait, and that's terribly important for maintaining good muscular uh, strength, especially in the lateral hip muscles. And as you lose more vision, you have to depend more and more on your proprioception. That is the the uh, the skin, the muscle, and the joint information that comes from weight-bearing joints. So I adapt by using my walker, uh, by my, uh, excuse me, I, would, I do not want to use a walker because you lean on, and your posture becomes very, very Im Im uh, impaired. Um, but what I started to say is uh, we have two steps in front of our building uh, in one entrance, and when I go up those steps, I put my ski poles in my left hand, grab the, um, the railing with the right hand. As I get to the top of these steps, I do not put my, uh, use my ski poles immediately. I make a right hand turn before I grab both, uh, before I use both ski poles, because if by chance I ever lost my balance, it's at least not as serious if I just lost my balance on a flat surface versus losing my balance down two steps. That's one of the, that's one of the adaptations. Absolutely. And uh, I know that you, you mentioned a little bit about the walker and 
obviously that's ubiquitous for folks who are losing their mobility. Could you talk a little bit about why that is not a, a great design? Well, because it has a horizontal handle. And for people who have orthopedic problems, such as I did when I uh, fell backwards off a, off a curb in New Hampshire, uh, because my, my ski boot, I mean, my winter boots slid off the sloping curb's edge. Uh, I, I broke my pelvis in two places, and for, eight, for three months, I had to be on partial weight-bearing, 25% weight-bearing. Well, that's the only kind of a walker you can use, and it was absolutely imperative that I use it. On the other hand, for people who are elderly, People, for example, in my uh, retirement community, um, when somebody new comes in, their family looks around and they say, oh, mom, maybe you should have a walker. I don't want you to lose your uh, balance. Well, that's one of the worst things they may be, be saying. That's not true in every case. Some people absolutely need walkers for arthritic reasons and for other reasons. Um, but in many cases, they start using a walker with the horizontal handles and they start leaning and then they get a forward pitch to their head, their shoulders, and this impairs their balance even further. Whereas if they had vertical handles so that they were forced, so it enabled them to maintain a vertical position, uh, it would be much easier for them to maintain what I call ears over hips and hips over heels. Why do you think it is that walkers are so prevalent still today if they, if they actually make it more difficult for people to age well? Why, why hasn't your ski pole innovation sort of been designed even earlier? I don't really have an answer to that. I think it's the culture. We have been brought up in a culture that um, focuses on the medical model of aging, whereas currently it's changing to be a much better health model of aging. So that we have preventive practice, we have, I think that whole focus will be more inclined to use something like ski poles or, and walking sticks are all right, but sometimes they aren't high enough, you need them at elbow uh, level. I have an article coming out uh, the 29th of December on uh, Next Avenue. I was among the 50 people selected who were most influential on aging in this country. And then we were asked, if you could do one thing to change aging, what would it be? And then they came back and we answered in 144 words. And that essay focuses on posture and maintaining good posture and starting good posture and brisk walking from childhood on. And that's how I would hope that we would have a better posture going into the aging years. So you're saying that right now I'm just sitting up more because, because I realize I'm hunching over to, to talk to you. So that whole, pro, that whole essay will be online in Next Avenue, and I've been told it was scheduled to go online the 29th of December of this year. Oh, great. So it'll be out probably before this, this episode airs. 
Um, wonderful. So you were talking a little bit about the change in mentality be, between the medical mindset of aging and sort of a health mindset. What do you think is at the heart of that shift? What, what's opened up in well, the I world? I think the one the very uh, clear uh, driving force is the fact that the baby boomers are aging. I think the statistics I heard at the uh, White House conference on aging, and I didn't know the statistic, it was 10,000 people a day reach the age of 65. Wow. And these are healthy, active people who have been uh, active in sports uh, many for, for many cases, in many instances, and they want to continue a healthy, active life. And I think that's a driving force that's very, very important and excellent. And we in the design field should, should meet those changing needs. Yeah, the, the entries that came up in the Designs on Aging contests that you were mentioning, um, I thought were, they seemed pretty inspiring. And I that was the first time that I'd uh, really spent any time doing research mm -hmm. or, or looking to understand the space of aging, although I'd done work in, in health and wellness. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, um, do you remember any from that that really piqued your curiosity or that you thought were great ideas? Oh, there was one that a uh, man by the name of Dim, this is his first name, uh, he, he designed a walker that had roller, like a, a skateboard, uh, and that had features that I, I liked, and I think it will be relevant to the early aging or you know the people who are over 55 um, should they need a walker on the other hand i thought there were some risks uh, to it um, but that was one of them also there was one from germany it was a car that uh, was very well designed so that you entered from the back as it was backed up to the curb uh, a wheelchair uh, could be rolled into it and then turned around so that you drove away. Uh, I like the design of that very much. I, that's one of the big ones. Uh, I remember another one, uh, I, can't, I have to think about it. It was a way that each person could put something about their life each year in a capsule uh, and put it rolled a, a piece of rolled up paper with their information on it, and it be, it became a, a chronological history of their lives uh, for their grandchildren to have. Nice. Um, I also wondered what are things out in the world today that you think are doing a great job of supporting uh, design and aging? Well, I think that uh, Gretchen is certainly. Uh, focusing on a new uh, platform for aging products. I think that will be, is worldwide, and uh, I think that will, as that comes into fruition and takes off, I think that will be very important. They will entertain ideas. I think Aging 2.0 involves people who are entrepreneurs and engage and helps them meet people who are in, uh, potential investors. I've seen some very good designs there. Uh, I work with Aging 2.0. I've worked with them at three different uh, conferences. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about the work Gretchen's doing? I'm not as familiar with it. I'm, but not, I'm... I'm not that familiar with it either, but I know that uh, it's a new platform. It was introduced uh, first in New York City right after the uh, we were in Washington, and that was July 13th. 
So the following week uh, after that, it was introduced in Washington. It was introduced here in San Francisco, I believe, in October. And it's uh, match. Uh, IDO is partnering with a firm from Japan that we've worked with for a long time. I can't tell you the name of it because I can't, don't remember. And they are. Uh, I think they're. Um, they may be opening in Tokyo. Um, you'll have to ask her about the details, but it has very. It has a wonderful promise because they no longer look at aging in terms of of years, it's design across the spectrum. So the good design is applicable regardless of age. Absolutely. Um, I think I wonder about, you know, for people who are starting to get up in years and they're worried about what life is going to be like, especially after retirement or big milestones like that, uh, what, what sort of advice would you give them? as they enter this next phase? I think the most important thing that has been supportive to my aging process has been the fact that from the time I retired, well, I've retired five times, it doesn't... <laughs> You're like um, Michael Jordan. Right. From the time I uh, turned in my certificate, my registration in occupational therapy after 44 years, from that time on, I... I always engaged in um, long, lifelong learning. Uh, Dartmouth, where I was, I was living near Dartmouth at that time in Vermont, and Dartmouth had a wonderful program called Iliad. When I moved to New London, New Hampshire, there was a, there were adventures in learning with Colby Sawyer, which I later uh, taught at. So I, I counted up one time. I think I in. I can't tell how many years, but uh, from 90, I retired in 89. Uh, from that time on, I think I had taken 50 courses. And to me, that's the most important thing, is to learn new things, engage with people who are thinking, uh, share your own expertise, either by teaching or participating in classes, reading new, new information, new books, new things that are introduced that I would have no idea. And how do you, um, how do you find the things that you're going to take classes in? Like what are, what guides your interest? Well, I'm very interested in history. I'm very interested in science. Uh, you know, between the, it was always a, uh, if there were 35 courses offered, there might be three that were very difficult to choose from if they were on, if two of them were on, were on the same day at the same time, or offered at the same time of the day. Um, that was my biggest problem. <laughs> what are some, what are some mistakes that you see people making as they age? And would you have any advice for them on what to do differently? I think the people I feel most sympathy for, and I use the word sympathy and not empathy, but sympathy, are the people who, as wonderful housewives and mothers, scout leaders, church uh, group leaders, have done so much for their children all their lives and for their church and community, but who have not had an outside career, either in a professional 
career or a business career or worked outside the home where there was a discipline that is not true in your own home when you're, own, when you're your own boss. That doesn't mean you don't have demands on you. You have many demands. But I find the people who have not had an outside life experience, and mine was certainly rich by being in the Army and being overseas. Um, so I've had such enrichment by just my, the experience by profession brought me to. And I feel that people who have not had, a con they don't have to have that much experience, but just have, have an outside exposure to people's thinking, disciplines, expectations, structure, time, deadlines. They've had deadlines at home. There's no question about that. But this is a different experience. And I think those people come into the aging process with less to draw on. And it's more likely that they will focus on their past experiences, which are fine, on their grandchildren's exposure experiences and accomplishments, which is fine, or sports. And I think that's one of the things that are that really invigorates many people in the aging community. Sports? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's watching surprising. Sports, watching, oh, part, not participating. Yeah, but even still, like, yeah. yeah. They have their favorite teams and people never miss a Giants game or a, you can tell I'm not into sports. I can't remember <laughs> who okay. plays in Oakland. Isn't that terrible? The A's, I think. I'm not that into sports either. It's fine. <laughs> that's where my limit comes. So, I mean, that's that's interesting. It, it does. It makes a lot of sense. I wonder for somebody who has had that as their experience, um, what are some things that they should be looking to do to gain a little bit more exposure? Well, at uh, the place where I where I live, they have wonderful lectures, and people do participate in those. They have art classes, and they have lots going on. We have trips. Um, and when I first moved here to California, having never been to California except a week at a time as a tourist, um, the trips were wonderfully important to me to learn the geography of the area. Um, so I think if the more they engage in the things that are offered, um, the better it is. We have movies once or twice a day. They have movies every night, sometimes in the afternoon. Uh, some of them, are, uh, some of those are very good. Um, but very often, people kind of live in the past of past old movies, old songs, old performers, um, which is fine. But it's not as engaging for somebody like me, and it's it's hard to to participate in that kind of uh, focus and interest. So the transition to living in a community with el other elderly people seems to be difficult for people, some people, not everybody. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about your own community and, and what you think works well and what you wish was I different. I would say the most important thing is 
be a participant in the decision making or make the decision on your own. And the people who take the longest to adjust, in my experience, are those who have had it picked out for them, and I don't mean necessarily foisted on them, but circumstances to, uh, set, the, set the agenda. Uh, if you wait until an emergency dictates that you do have to move, that's much more difficult. In my case, yes, I had, <clears throat> in 19, when I was uh, 80, not 87, it was when I uh, fell in, and broke my pelvis, and after that, I decided that I should look in Arizona where my younger stepson was living. And, uh, I looked there at uh, possible places I would be comfortable if an emergency came up. That was the way I started because uh, I didn't want them to have to pick out a place for me and I might not be happy about it. Then I came here to California and I looked at uh, six places I found two that were uh, most acceptable. I came back and spent a month living here so that I could measure every wall. And coming from New Hampshire, you don't want to bring anything heavy across country that you aren't going to be able to use when you get here. So I measured every wall. I knew exactly what pieces of furniture would fit and what I could bring. And it was the easiest transition I could possibly make. But everybody has the trauma of downsizing, leaving their homes of sometimes 50 and 60 years for many of these people. Having been in the Army, I've moved around so many times I can move it on a dime. Um, so I think that the more often the, the elder person has a a voice in the decision making, but they, if they can make it on their own, if they can make the decision on their own, they'll be much happier. And too many times people wait too late until circumstances require it, loss of a spouse, loss of hearing or sight, loss of ambulation that requires that they have to move into a facility that gives services. I, I'm interested to know what advice you have for young designers, people just sort of coming on the scene with all of your wisdom and experience in the industry. I would say that if it would be possible, and I know there are some facilities that allow this, I would say that if you could get a residence of a month to come and live, and go through all this, the structure and, the, and see all the good things that can be done, see what help can be available if you need help, see the problems of the people who are failing, talk to people, engage them. And if you ask them, well, if you could design something, what would it be to help them? That's not the way to go about it because they'll say, and I've done this, and I wondered why it didn't work. And Gretchen laughed and she said, "We, you didn't ask the question the right way. Well, I've never gotten around to asking her, <laughs> what should I have asked? But when I ask people, what what would you like if you could uh, get have something designed for you? Oh, I don't need anything. I, 
So they're not geared to thinking. You don't ask them that way. Well, and they're also not designers. So, I mean, that's not their, that's not their, their craft. Expertise, yeah. Of course. So um, I, I think it's interesting, the idea that, were you suggesting somebody should go live in like a nursing home? And yes, indeed. Absolutely. That would be amazing. I know that uh, there's one very large company that allows uh, for residences, residencies, they call it. It's like an internship. Yeah. And this particular person is designing some very important uh, features. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I know that she was, um, I think there were applications that were selected. She was selected for this particular opening. And I think they may have had multiple applications somewhere in the Carolinas where she could go and spend a month as I did when I came out here for the month and really live the life of an elder person or a group of elderly person. I think that's the one of them. That's the richest experience you can possibly have. I would agree. That sounds, that sounds, I mean, that's extreme empathy building. I mean, we go and talk to people for an hour or two at a time when we do our design work, but to get a chance to really live with the population you're designing for, would be incredible. Well, I'll tell you, having lived in a nursing home for three months in rehabilitation, I can tell you it's no fun. Right. And I would stay out of a nursing home if I could. That doesn't mean that it isn't, it isn't important for people who can't. But it gave me so much understanding of people who were el more elderly than I or more incapacitated than I. I at least knew that I was going to get out of there. But to go through night after night, what's it, what's it like to live there at night? Well, it's no fun. It's noisy. They put people to bed at 6 o'clock. They give them a sleeping pill. They feed them at 4.30, give them a sleeping pill at 6, and then wonder why they can't sleep. Wow. <laughs> And it's noisy, the carts are going up and down, the people are yelling in the hall sometimes, and it's not a joy ride. And if I had to be there for the rest of my life, when I was exposed to it then, it would have been a very depressing experience. So I think that has given me a lot of empathy. You also, it also points out a huge opportunity to redesign that experience. <laughs> Yeah, well, don't ask me. They wouldn't want my opinion. <laughs> I think your opinion would be incredibly valuable. I think I, I love that, you know, you're helping to lead the charge and Gretchen is as well. I know there are some other folks at IDEO and design firms around the world looking at this problem, the challenges involved in aging seriously. Oh, yes. And, and, and coming up with solutions. In the Orient, uh, I mean, their aging populations are so much larger than ours, and they have fewer people to help them. Right. And they also look at elder people differently. They do. They, they have more respect and they revere them. They live at time. home. And now with only, with, in China, with a one-child population, if you lose that child, you're really in trouble. Mm -hmm. And even that child may have gone elsewhere to work. Right. So it's not the same demographics and uh, uh, social structure uh, that they are used to. Yeah, things things have changed. 
Um, well, I wanted to be respectful of your time. It's been about 40 minutes. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights with us today. Uh, you're as lovely and as engaging as I remember from before. <laughs> and I'm so glad to see you thriving. Well, let me tell you one thing, Tracy. Every time I have an occasion to discuss things, I think of something new and from a different perspective. And that's very enriching to me. Same for me. Thank you. <laughs>